0: Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hello and welcome to In Focus podcast. I'm G. Sampath, the Hindu social affairs editor, and your host for today's episode. If you are in India or for for that matter, uh, in the US or UK or wherever in the world, you're probably listening to this from your home. Not just India, but much of the world is under a lockdown or some version of a lockdown due to the coronavirus disease or COVID-19 as it's come to be known, which has been declared a pandemic. Uh, This pandemic has disrupted the usual ways of doing things in almost every domain of personal and professional life. Our most critical challenges today are, of course, directly to do with public health. uh, How to stop the spread of this disease and how to save lives. But there are also, there is also another big challenge which has uh, ramifications for public health. And that is how to understand, report on and communicate with accuracy the risks associated with this disease to the public at large. So uh, we'll be looking at all these questions. And today we have with us uh, Thomas Abraham. A very senior journalist who now teaches in the Media Studies Department of uh, Hong Kong University. His research interests, interests are focused on uh, risk communication during infectious disease pandemics and epidemics, the role of the media during an epidemic outbreak, and global health security. His books, 21st Century Plague, The Story of SARS, and Polio The Odyssey of Eradication, are seminal works of public health journalism and research. Thomas, welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. Thank you for your invitation. Uh, Thomas, uh, let me begin by asking a very uh, fundamental question. I mean, uh, you've been, I'm sure, uh, following closely the kind of uh, coverage uh, that's been happening on the disease both in India and globally. Uh, Have we been asking the right kind of questions uh, in our coverage of uh, the coronavirus disease? Okay, so here's the issue. You know, most people who are reporting it, most journalists
0: who are reporting it on it have been thrown into this cold, right? Because news organizations um, in India and even abroad, except for the very, very big ones, do not have the luxury of having specialized health reporters. So it's the person who's been, you know, covering the police or the person who's been covering business uh, who's suddenly thrown into this. Um, and said, okay, and told that you're a health reporter, so start reporting this. Um, so what do you do? Um, you have to produce stories every day. And so um, you tend to fix on the easiest stories, which is numbers, right? How many new cases every day? Um, are they growing? Are they less? And of course, the secondary thing, what is the government doing? So government announcements and numbers. Um, And so most stories, most of the reportage that we read, uh, 99 percent actually, would be focused on these two things. But, you know, numbers or even government announcements, a press conference or or, or a press release is this is just the tip of the iceberg. It's the beginning of the story. It's not what the story is itself. Um, What exactly do these numbers mean? For example, from um, January onwards, um, when this first erupted in Wuhan, we've had daily figures, initially from the WHO, from the Chinese government, and later when it came to uh, India uh, from uh, the Ministry of Health on the figures coming in, new infections. What exactly does that mean? Does 100 new infections mean that 100 people are going to die? No. Right. Because this is a disease that basically 80 percent of people have very, very mild symptoms. It's the other 20 percent who who are going to require hospital hospitalization and two to three percent of them are probably going to die. So without this context, the figures themselves mean nothing. Right. So the question then becomes, where do we get this information, this supplementary information? Um how do we know how to interpret these figures and especially when you know we haven't done this before well, what can we do i think everybody and this is something that media organizations and perhaps other journalists organizations uh, should do is really putting together sources essential sources of information and for example the who website and that's a great resource because it's got everything from case definitions to numbers to what is the WHO's advice to government? The science on this, how many people are going to die, right? Um, So that's one uh, thing that needs to be done. But the broader picture is really we need for future, the lesson really for future disease outbreaks. And one thing that we can be sure is it's not going to be the first or the last that we're going to see is that news organizations and journalists organizations really need to spend a lot more time preparing reporters um, to report on these issues
1: right right so in uh, in your response you you mentioned the importance of giving context uh, to these numbers and uh, you you sort of uh, illustrated this by saying you know do does hundred cases mean 100 people are going to die and so on. But there is another angle uh, to this whole contextualization uh, uh, business, which, uh, which I, I think uh, uh, needs a little more elaboration. Probably you could help here. We keep hearing, for example, uh, uh, in, I mean globally there are uh, now two hundred thousand cases of uh, COVID nineteen. In India there are six hundred cases, seven hundred cases, and so on. Now, even with the even with the knowledge that okay, only maybe three percent, the two percent of these might end in. Uh, fatality there seems to be something lacking in these numbers in the sense of uh, if you compare it uh, with another with other diseases for example in india i don't know how many cases of tuberculosis which is also an infectious disease we get every year but the response to that hasn't been uh, in the same way in terms of the coverage or in terms of uh, the government's response we don't know i don't know if india has a flu program how many cases of flu uh, we get in a year how many uh, children under 5 die of uh, you know avoidable diseases where the numbers are equally in the same range, if not in a bigger range. So, how do you justify a a response of this uh, nature for this particular disease, uh, vis-a-vis the same kind of numbers evoking a different kind of response? Because numbers are numbers, isn't it?
0: That's right. So, I think that's a really, really good question. Uh, It's a good series of questions, which really... But point number one, of course, behind each number, there is a human being, right? So we need to uh, get down to that. Uh, We need to compare the burden that other diseases, that, you know, human populations suffer from other diseases. And, um, And it's a very legitimate question to ask, why are we this concerned? about this particular disease, right, Uh, especially when 80% of of cases are really just suffer mild illness. Now, here are two things to note. Uh, Number one, this is a new disease. It just emerged in human populations um, a couple of months ago, perhaps December or November at the latest last year, which gives it about four months or so. And what does it mean? What does a new disease mean? A new disease caused by a new um, pathogen, a virus in this case, it implies that human populations, nobody has any immunity to this, right? Existing diseases, the flu, for example, which you mentioned, we already have a large substantial proportion of the population has some degree of immunity, right? Because in the course of our lives, we have come across it once, we may have fallen ill once, we have antibodies now, right? Now, in the case of a new virus, potentially the entire global population, six, seven billion, are vulnerable to this, right? And we're fortunate that the vast majority of cases are extremely mild, right? But look at the 20% who will require hospitalization. Um, In the course of a normal year, right? Uh, And that's a huge number. Now, we have a certain number of ICU beds all in, in this country and everywhere else, and there's a regular stream of people coming in, right? And even then, we don't have enough. Now, in the case of this disease, it's going to be a wave of people coming in, right? Uh, who are going to require hospitalization and about 10% of them are going to require ICUs, they're going to require um, ventilation. All of these things happening all at the same time. They're not going to come in ones and twos, right? It's not going to be one this week and the next one the other week. It's going to be coming all at once because these new diseases, they sweep through a population in waves, right? Right. So the real issue behind the figures, and this actually goes back to the previous question that you had asked as well. What else? What is the context? What is it that we're really talking about when we say the hundred new cases, two hundred new cases? Basically, we look. We, we need. To, we're taking this further down, right? If this explodes as it has in other countries, more and more people are going to require hospitalization. They're going to require intensive care, right? Do we have the capacity to cater for this? Are our doctors prepared for this? Are our nurses prepared for this? Are other healthcare workers prepared for this? Do they have enough training? Do they have enough equipment? I think we all remember the case in, which happened in Gorakhpur uh, a year, more than a year ago now, uh, cases of Japanese encephalitis. And it turned out that the hospital in Gorakhpur didn't even have enough oxygen, right? to treat these cases. So uh, can you imagine district hospitals across the land having to face waves of people, large numbers of people coming, requiring hospitalization with insufficient supplies of essentials, right? So this is really what one is worried about, the fact, so what is it? Number one, it's new, because it's new, everybody is vulnerable. Number two, a certain proportion are going to require hospitalization. Number three, this is all going to happen at at the same time. It's not going to be neatly staggered over time. So you put all of this together and then you see why this is different um, from diseases like malaria, diseases like tuberculosis, uh chikungunya dengue all of these other diseases that we live in uh, that we live
1: with you know year in and year out right right yeah no i see your point i mean of course uh, the fact that it's a new disease and uh, the kind of uh, escalation in terms of uh, new patients is unprecedented compared to uh, what it what the normal uh, run of things is of course there are very critical points But I would still, you know, I'm still, uh, I mean, I can't help but thinking that if these kinds of questions uh, and the attention we are giving, uh, justly, of course, and rightly so, to this disease had been done for the other diseases like tuberculosis, India's TB program, for example, and, you know, other related uh, questions about an availability of uh, beds and ventilators and ICU beds and so on. I mean, one, one argument in recent times has been that, uh, the public health infrastructure should anyway have a surge capacity if we had had that surge capacity which means you have an extra number of beds and uh, availability of uh, personnel and so on we wouldn't be struggling so much uh, so much with, with the way we are in terms of meeting the current crisis and secondly uh, i mean is, is, do you think there is also a kind of a parallel with uh, in the media side as well in terms of uh, we find that If you find today that in terms of handling the kind of uh, patient load, we are falling way, way short given the public infrastructure which is already at breaking point in the normal run. There's a similar kind of uh, lack of capacity in terms of, uh, uh, as you had mentioned briefly earlier, about uh, reporting infrastructure which is devoted to following public health stories closely in the the normal run of things as well, as opposed to a, a crisis point as that we see today. You're absolutely right. Now, I'll make one general point, and that is diseases like this
0: cruelly expose not a society, right? It hits the weak points of every society. It cruelly exposes the weaknesses of a society. Now, one of the things that this pandemic is going to expose, not merely in India, but across the world, is the chronic underfunding of health systems, right? And in countries like India, it is the chronic underfunding of public health systems, private, publicly owned government health systems, right? Because this is what the vast majority of people need to have access to. And this is something that every, you know, since independence, pre-independence, we have neglected because health is not seen as this exciting thing, right? It's not seen as exciting as defense, for example, or... As necessary as law and order, um, and, and all of these other things. Um, we have chronically underfunded health. Uh, health infrastructure is poor. Um, uh, the majority of people in this country do not have the ability to pay for the kind of care that they require, and neither is the public sector um, able to, to, to provide. So uh, in even it's going to expose um Gaps in supply chains, for example, right? Um, it's going to. I mean, how do you get testing kits from point A to point B, right? Uh, what are the protocols? Who is supposed to do it? Where are we? Where are people supposed to procure um, uh, equipment from, right? Who's going to pay for all of this? So you're right. I mean, the chronic underfunding of the health system is going to be very cruelly exposed, and weaknesses in every other social system will be exposed as well. Weaknesses in our administration, weaknesses in our political system, weaknesses in the media, underfunding of the media, all of these will be exposed, right? So this this disease, it's going to be like an X-ray, right? Which exposes the skeleton of society. And I suspect what we're going to see is not going to be very pretty.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a very good uh, metaphor. I mean, it is sort of uh, uh, bringing out all the social pathologies, uh, so to speak. Uh, you know, in the past we have been seeing in reports of various kinds the last ten days or so. Now, coming back to the uh, to the numbers I- issue, I wanted to just uh, pick your brain on something uh, interesting here, which is to do with uh, the kind of estimates we've been reading. You know, uh, the mathematical uh, modeling which goes into the kind of projections that. Uh, that uh, various epidemiologists uh, make. I mean, how much of these projections uh, are just pure mathematics and how realistic are they? I mean, are they are they comparable to the model of uh, the model followed by by economists for example the, the rationally self-interested home economists whom you don't find in real life and, and which is one of the reasons probably why economists tend to get uh, their projections wrong frequently nobody predicted the 2008 crisis for instance and, and we have uh, we have people who when there have been reports in 2005 for instance that the avian flu is going to claim 150 million lives you know and we we have seen in the last uh, I mean, in the years that followed, how many people died of avian flu. But we have similar figures being trotted out by, by various experts for uh, for COVID-19 as well. So uh, and and once the whole thing passes, there doesn't seem to be uh, any kind of accountability extracted from from these experts who make these kinds of uh, really uh, exaggerated uh, projections. Or or is it possible that these projections didn't a workout because, you know, everybody uh, sprang to the rescue and sort of prevented the spread and so forth. Like, how do we uh, report uh, accurately on these projections and with uh, responsibility? Yeah. So um, in health, the public
0: health model, the disease modeling is basically a model. And it puts in certain assumptions, right? For example, one basic assumption is each infected person, how many new people is that one infected person going to? Um infect and that's called a basic reproduction rate Um, there's another thing called the serial interval right which is adds time to it you infect new people but over what period of time are you going to infect new people you plug these in and then you will get a figure of if nothing is done at all how many people will get infected right based on that then you put in different interventions Suppose I were to stop all movement of people, right? Then what would happen? Suppose I were to put in a partial movement of people, then what would happen? Suppose I were to do nothing and just let the disease rage, then what would happen? So these are tools for decision makers to understand the different kinds of interventions they can make and then do a cost-benefit analysis. It may turn out that if you do a lockdown, Right. The disease, the model may show you that within 30 days, the last there will be no new cases. Right. So that is one option. But then it's for policymakers to say, what is the cost of this option? Is it doable? Right. Uh, If it's not doable, then what is option B? Which may be something, for example, a lockdown of certain areas, but not other areas. And then the model may tell you, in this case, you've got three months. The last case will probably appear three months from now. So what a model does is it plugs in two or three basic assumptions and tells you how the disease will go if nothing is done. Now, this model is meant to be used by policymakers to look at the costs and benefits of different interventions. So that's really how they should be interpreted. So, most models tell you if nothing happens, this is what's going to do, right? If you do X, then this is going to happen. If you do Y, this is likely to happen. And once more, I mean, and then of course, there's a big health warning on all models, and that is basically they're just models, right? It's not real life. You are trying to model or approximate real life. And why do you do this? It's a planning tool, it's a tool for decision makers to come to different Um, you know, to decide, what do we do with this now? What is the best way to handle this,
1: given our own circumstances? Okay. So now, uh, you mentioned, you know, like these different assumptions which go into a model, if if there is a partial lockdown or if something is done or if nothing is done, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. But I'm not sure that uh, all the assumptions that go into uh, the making of a particular model really uh, gets communicated when 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 people report that you know so and so expert expert or so and so organization has said uh, 100 million can die or 150 million can die and so on. But I'm sure there are I think 12, 13 assumptions which could uh, tip the estimate one way or the other. Isn't that absolutely?
0: And and the important thing is that it's really important. And this is for health journals. Or anybody read the basic paper before you report on it, right? Don't re, don't report on the press release, don't report. And same thing with, uh, you know, with anything to do with, with with COVID as well, COVID symptoms. There's a lot of literature coming out as well. And the basic source for any journalist really is is the original, you know, what science is this based on? Show me the paper. And then maybe you can go and talk to other people, right? Um, is this assumption valid, right? Or you go to WHO and say, you know, they have assumed that one person is, is, will infect three new people. Is this what WHO is also saying? Is this what other new papers are saying? So you're right. And this is something fundamental to all journalism. You need to really to go to the original source. If if the model comes, is is published in a paper, please go read the paper, right? Um, And understand what it is. And then come to your own judgment because this is also what the public expects from us, right? The public cannot read all of this documentation. They depend on us to read.
1: Right. Right. So uh, my last uh, question to you uh, in this uh, podcast, so we've seen, uh, if you look at SARS, I mean, uh, it sort of uh, seemed to have disappeared uh, on its own, uh, or maybe it became endemic. I don't know. Uh, You could probably throw some light on that. So how does a pandemic end? Like, how do you see this? Corona virus pandemic ending uh, in India especially, does is it, is it, is it, the, the pandemic ending mean, does it mean it becomes endemic or does it mean that uh, it stops uh, bothering, uh, bothering everyone once a vaccine is discovered or whatever? Yeah, so that, actually that's a good question. Now, the first SARS in
0: 2003 was very unusual. It disappeared by June, July 2003 and it has never been seen again. This has never been seen in any, this has never been experienced with any other disease. So what is the normal pattern for a disease, a new disease like this? It enters a population, it spreads, right? Um, Very often it spreads in waves, seasonal waves. So in some parts of the world, this could disappear after three or four months and reappear maybe when uh, the weather changes, right? um and infect new people as well so we really don't know most diseases come in seasonal waves some of them are endemic as you say so how is all of this going to end so if we're really really lucky this coronavirus could just disappear after six months right but that was a one-off more likely it would become like the flu right Uh, it would sort of go through the population and when it's really interesting to you know, epidemiologically, what happens when a pathogen passes through a population? Initially, when it enters a population, everyone is susceptible, right? Nobody has immunity. People get infected, um, they recover, or they die. If they recover, they're immune. So, in a sense, they're taken out of the susceptible category. right? Right. So as a virus passes through a population, people move from the susceptible category to the recovered or the immune category. And if you look at it, I mean, under perfect conditions, a virus would keep traveling, 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 traveling until it found no more susceptible people, either because they were all immune and recovered or because they'd all died, right? And that, in a sort of perfect sense, uh, is how... A disease ends right now clearly in in the real in the real world situation that's not how it would end um because we would do things to stop it from transmitting which is good uh, fewer people get infected but at the same time you get more people who remain susceptible right because you built walls around these people so they're still susceptible but they're protected so, um, in terms of coronavirus as well, I don't think the science has quite figured out whether people can get reinfected, but the assumption is that they won't get reinfected. To figure that out, you need more studies. You need what are known as zero studies, where you actually need to test the blood of people who, whom you know have got have had coronavirus and see what level of antibodies they have and so on and so forth.
1: Right. Uh, that was uh, really a, a fascinating uh, conversation, at least for me. And I hope uh, everybody who's listened to this uh, will find it uh, uh, useful uh, in going forward and doing further research on this subject. And I would say uh, there have been uh, four, uh, or three or four key takeaways for uh, for media practitioners who've been who've tuned into this, one is uh, do go beyond the numbers, the obvious numbers of cases of cases and mortality rate and so on. Go beyond government announcements, and if you're reporting on research, go to the original paper. And finally, uh, uh, let's invest more in uh, in in health reportage and public health uh, news gathering in general. Uh, Thomas, thank you so much for uh, talking to my the Hindu podcast. Thank you so much, and hope to see you again. Bye. <laughs>